You're rocking with the Grio. What's a Grio? It's a storyteller, a poet, a musician, or a music lover, and a culture keeper. Celebrating life, love, and self with ordinary people telling extraordinary stories. Welcome to the show. We're your hosts, Jamil B. and Keith Marceau. We are the Grio. This is a podcast about purpose-driven parents raising their kids, still figuring out how to raise themselves. We share our stories, lessons, and a host of amazing guests with resources that can help you figure this thing out too. Keith. Jill Meal. What's up, my girl? Welcome to episode one. Bruh. Okay. <laughs> we doing this. Oh, it's been a long time coming, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm so excited that we're here and that this is our first episode because that means it's real. So what is a griot? I think we just need to set the baseline so that everybody's on the same page and we're sharing the same language. Okay. So a griot um, originates out of West Africa. And I remember us sitting um, outside at work (laughs) trying to decide what should it be called. And when I said the griots, you're like, oh, yes, that feels perfect. And griots in the very nature are storytellers. They're the ones responsible to take in the stories, to hear them and make sure to move the culture forward. Right. They're the ones who keep the oral tradition alive. They were the poets they were the ones you went to when you wanted to get married. I mean, I'm saying I'm not certified like to marry anybody, but legit, I could speak some words of encouragement in their lives. Where we are today, uh, oral tradition is is going away. And, you know, I challenge you to think of the last time you heard a really good story in person by somebody that, that really gave you perspective into um, their history. And so what I know my hope and my purpose is in this podcast is to create space where I can be intentional about reflecting and sharing what has served me and releasing what doesn't. And to really challenge everybody to recognize that you have a story, owning it is what will bring your healing and that you are the answer you've been looking for. I woke up in the morning feeling fresh to death. I'm so blessed. Yes, yes. I went to sleep stressed, woke up refreshed, I'm so blessed, yeah, yes. Water in my face and everything is in its place, peace of mind, even my grace. I'm so blessed, yes, yes. We have a a section almost in every episode where we, uh, get, you know, talk about what we're grateful for. It's called the gratitude jar. Absolutely. So let's jump into the gratitude jar. Oh, what are you grateful for, Jamil? Okay, so in the in the essence of telling stories, I'm actually grateful for my first experience marching on Washington. Um, I was in college and I was an, a resident assistant and um, I was in college on a scholastic scholarship and I had something called the MLK scholarship, which was reserved for um, African-Americans and um At the time, affirmative action was a big topic, and there was a case um, at University of Michigan where a couple students who did not get in, which I don't know if you know anything about University of Michigan, but it is not easy to be admitted, 
um, they were upset and um, they filed a lawsuit saying, well, they were the, the reverse discrimination, right, is what they were claiming. And so the impact of that, though, is that all scholarships that were awarded to people of color were threatened, which was going to significantly affect me at that specific time. And I remember riding in the car and listening to some of my um, friends talk about it. And it was very interesting to witness like the different positions on being engaged in politics or things that would affect us in the right now. And I just remember being so passionate about saying, well, our ancestors, you know, and I would march, I would do whatever it took. Right. And I I gassed myself up. I was really, really, really amp about it. And it was interesting because I found out that there was um, buses going to march on Washington at the time. And I just figured I would sign up you know, yeah, sign me up, you do the work, but I'll be there and I'll support. And then I found out that, yeah, sure, you can go. There's a movement of people going, but I had to organize the bus. I had to get the money for it. I had to do all these things. And I learned that after already saying I was going to do it. And so I'm, I'm grateful for just that first experience of speaking a thing out and then being confronted with when it manifests itself, the responsibility to live into it, even though I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And that was by far at that time, one of the most challenging things I had ever done because I only had three weeks, Keith. Bruh, I had three weeks <laughs> and zero dollars and zero bodies that was willing to like go with me um, in this effort to fight for something that I really believed in. But What it really came down to is I tapped into my resources and my relationships and I just started telling the story of the impact of it. And that was really my first exposure to telling a story with people and among people for a purpose. Um, And what it came down to is we we ended up getting the bus. We raised about five thousand dollars and we got about 22 people on the bus and right before we got ready to lift off because it's a Michigan cold winter the a piece under the bus froze we couldn't take off I was like having the most anxiety of my life but um got through it we got there and I spoke and that changed the trajectory of my life it's amazing so I'm grateful for having high ambitions and aspirations and speaking it out even before I believe in myself enough to do it and then fulfilling my prophecy. And being a boss. And being a boss. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's amazing. And, uh, it, you know, you talk about things that change the trajectory of your life. Um, you know, I'm grateful for a moment just like that, you know, something that really changed things for me uh, deeply. And I was... Oh, man, I might have been around eight or nine years old. Uh, and my dad decides that for our spring break, uh, we were going to go on a civil rights tour. And my dad uh, was writing a story, a multi-part story that was going to be published in the Times-Picayune at the time uh, where he had just left. Um, and he wanted to take us in, in a, on a real journey, a uh, real adventure through uh, and really live the civil rights movement. So it's really interesting. I mean, we, we first off, I mean, when you tell an eight-year-old what you're about to do for spring break and it involves a road trip, you know, uh, especially when it's going to be going uh, on the civil rights tour, you, you, no matter, 
who you are at eight years old, I mean, it's a lot for you to just take that and be like, that sounds like great, you know? So, <laughs> and, and that's, that's kind of the more, when I get to it, that's the moral I think of the story is that there are things that when you expose children to, it's going to change them in a positive way. Uh, so we start off uh, in Atlanta. Uh, we go to Ebenezer Baptist Church, where uh, King's service was held when when after he was assassinated. And my dad, uh, this whole trip, he wanted he gave us notebooks and he really wanted us to feel. That was the whole purpose of it. It was to feel. And he said, "Go sit on this front row pew where Credit Scott King sat and watched her husband lie in a casket." And uh, you know, between what we already knew and the stories he was telling us then had us write down how we we're feeling. And that was a deep journey inside of yourself at, you know, at the early age, uh, you know, being, I might've been 10, I'm not sure. We uh, go to the King Center. That was really impactful. Um, we also went to his, his childhood home while we were in Atlanta. So we depart Atlanta. Um, we go to Alabama. We go to the Tuskegee Institute. And once again, writing down how I'm feeling, going to different exhibits uh, at the different museums we went to and, you know, really getting a lesson about why I'm able to even go on this trip right now, you know, and, and capabilities that we have as, as a people. And that was huge. Um, we, we also went to Montgomery and then uh, we went to Birmingham and Birmingham is probably one of the, the biggest, uh, most most impactful moments for me on that trip because it was it was one of the saddest and my dad took us to uh, the 16th street Baptist church where there was a, a bombing that went on. You know, of course there was just a lot of, of violence going on at that time. And he had us go down into the basement where four little girls were killed. So it was just a, it's such a impactful moment for that community too. I mean, just there are people living today who that's their direct past, you know, it's like in my lifetime, I lost family members to, uh, racist uh, violence. One of the biggest highlights of the trip, we went to Selma and we walked the bridge, you know, and, and it's hand in hand, my sister and my father. Uh, we walked that bridge and we uh, stopped at the various monuments that were there that um, spoke about the story. Um, but just being up on, on that height and then, you know, you see movies like Selma, you, you've seen other documentaries in the past, you've read books, but to be there is just all of this, it, it, nothing equates to being in those moments and hearing those stories from people who have lived in those towns. They don't add up to what you can get out of a movie or anything. I, I went from being this child who had an idea of the past to walking the past, you know, and that changed me. I changed my perspective of who we are and what we're worth, you know, and what we went through to get to where we are today. And it added immense value that is lasted 24 years and now I'm, I'm a father and now I'm able to prepare a trip like that for my children so that I can continue the storytelling and uh, and and move those traditions of walking the past on to my kids so man but see and that's why we do the gratitude jar because just that moment of remembering and sharing um it, it reminding ourselves of what we are grateful for is a really intentional act to come into present um, so that we can be better equipped as we move forward, as we dive into our past to find the, the stories that are going to bring us strength 
um, that are going to bring us laughter, that are going to bring all of those things. What we're doing with this podcast, what we're doing, I think, with every part of our lives, because we're trying to figure out how to raise our kids ourselves as we're raising our kids. And we are really challenging ourselves to dig deep and to highlight the, the simple things, right? Like every story won't be maybe as um, big, but it, it's impactful. Our first guest on our first episode is going to excuse me, my dad. He's just lived a great life of, of storytelling and, and really empowering people to feel. He spent 16 years at the Times-Picayune uh, in our hometown of New Orleans. Uh, he was a former sports writer, worked his way all the way up to being the first black city editor at the Times-Picayune. Uh, he went on to the Pointer Institute for Media Studies in St. Pete, where he trained professional journalists on uh, ethics and diversity and reporting and personal essay writing. And now he is the VP of Newsroom Training and Diversity at NPR. I am so excited to meet you and to have you here. Well, it's good to be here. So I just want to say, um, you know, not at all to date you, but the fact that your experiences, right, and that of your parents, and they've shared stories with you, you literally are carrying probably a total of a century of stories right here in the room. And I just think that is so amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about how those stories have shaped your concept of culture and have factored into defining who you are? Well, you're being generous by stopping at a century. Uh, but uh, I, I think it would be fair to say that the, the stories that I tell myself and, uh, and pass on uh, to my kids, the, the ways that I talk about the past and the ways that I talk about who I am all come through some kind of story uh, that is related for me to my uh, father, grand, grandfather, you know, the, the things that I've uh, both observed and heard uh, over the years. And because I see the world through stories almost as a a natural and professional perspective, I tend to think of of those uh, those things in in terms of stories. So, as an example, uh, you know, I went to vote. Well, I didn't go to vote. I went with my grandfather and father when they were voting. Oh, at that time, was that like a childhood? Oh, I was or? I was seven, maybe. I was I was a child. But I, what I remember about it was the sense of profound importance that that had. I had no idea as a seven-year-old why it was profoundly important for two black men to be going to vote with their, with their uh, black grandson and, and son. Uh, but it felt important. And, uh, and so as a sense of story, I talk about my, my uh, view of my role in a democratic process through that story. Uh, and you may not remember, but, uh, but I made sure that you saw me vote 
in the same way uh, that you came with me to the voting booth and went inside behind the curtain when there were curtains, uh, flipped the switch to close the curtain, pulled the levers, because at the point that I took you to the voting booth, I understood how important it was. Uh, where I could remember that sense of pride as a child, uh, with my dad especially, it was in those places we went. Barbershop is the one that I remember the most, uh, where he was in an element that was that was contextually different from what I knew him every other day because the barbershop in New Orleans was on the ground floor of one of the most significant men's social clubs, black men's social clubs in New Orleans, the Autocrat Club, and uh, and all the people who were there were coming to get all groomed up and have their shoes shined outside by Shorty, the shoe shine man, uh, because they were going to be out there that night, that Saturday night, um, dressed to the nines and uh, uh, and out with their friends. And, and then you had a different sense of context. I think that... It's so important, just the feeling that it elicits to remember the stories that you hear from your parents. You know, I know growing up, my mom used to sit with me and just tell me stories of her childhood. And they were nothing spectacular. It was, oh, I, you know, used to jump double dutch or I, those things. And so it just brings it forward. And I think the concept of oral tradition is so important. Um, but it's almost like a lost art form, if you will. And so I'm curious how, in your experience and your opinion, you think we could capture and really preserve our ancestors' stories, um, their struggles, their triumphs in a world that seems to constantly misappropriate our stories and retell them not from our lens. Well, I think, I mean, frankly, the resurgence now of audio uh, has offered us one opportunity to do that in, in ways that we might not have. And the fact that we could be sitting here in a living room doing this uh, this podcast talks about how low the barriers have become for people to do that. I wish that I had sat down with my dad or my mom or my grandparents and turned on a recorder and done this. I, I have, in fact... Um, uh, gotten some background information about my dad from his youngest brother before he passed uh, that's on video, although it's on a, a format now that I'm not sure I could uh, even access. But one of the things that you realize, in, I mean, this, I don't know that this is a cultural, fam familial, or just societal thing, but uh, we have people who love to tell the stories and then people who don't, uh, and parents who do and parents who don't. Uh, my mom was not one to tell the stories. I, I have a small handful of things that I know directly from her about her past. Uh, my dad was a little bit more talkative, uh, but also more, more inclined to tell me some of the, uh, uh, the horror stories of being a black man coming up in America, and uh, and so some of the 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 the, the more uh, ordinary things about him I've learned from other people. You talked about audio. You talked about 
the low barriers, do you feel like that's where people should be headed right now is, is really recording those stories if we're going to preserve and, and, and move them forward? Yeah, I think the, the, the challenge that we have overall is that as human beings, we don't start appreciating the, the value of this until significantly later in life. And a lot of times at the point that you start thinking, oh, that might be important to preserve, it's too late. Something's happened or someone has died or whatever the, uh, uh, the, uh, the case might be. So, yeah, I think the fact that we are, in fact, living our lives now on Instagram and living our lives in Twitter and on all manner of video and audio recording means that there's going to be things that will live on beyond us, not because we thought, oh, this is going to be important, I better preserve it, but because we already put it out there in some format that will outlive us. Like your last weekend at the club. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's so many memes out there where it's like parents in 2050. And it's just like when you go back and look at all your photo albums, there's a bunch of Instagram pictures. Yeah, I deleted my first Facebook profile. I don't even know where it is. Hopefully it doesn't exist. Yeah, but hopefully, in fact, you do preserve some of it because in in the digital age, things just come and go. We're in a very disposable period in our society overall. uh, And everything tends to just float past us so quickly uh, and and move on that... Uh, it's it's hard to remember to print out a photograph. Yes, if it okay. So my mother in law stays with us, and if it was not for her printing physical images, we wouldn't have photo albums. Yeah. And it's little things like that that I really really appreciate. Um, and you said something earlier just about the audio um, recording and the preserving of this, considering the format that we have. And I like to think that you know, one day our great grandchildren could find this because the internet never dies and they could listen to us and hear from us long after, you know, we've transitioned. And I just, that blows my mind, you know? And you said something earlier. I wonder why do you think it is so difficult um, for, for individuals, particularly African-Americans to want to, read our own stories or share our stories or feel that they are valuable and worth sharing? Like, do you feel like there's some reason behind that on a larger scale? Well, it depends at some level on what the story is, right? I think, uh, again, to go back to my parents, there were parts of that history that you just as soon forget if you could. you just as soon leave in the past if you could. And uh, like you've, you talked to the, the, remain, the remaining World War II veterans who never talked about the experience uh, of being overseas for that war, and there's a reason. Um, they, 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 you know, they don't want to uh, be re-traumatized themselves. They don't want to remember it themselves. And so some things fade into history that way. But I think one of our biggest challenges, I mean, societally, and again, maybe culturally, is that there was another thing happening in their lives when the bad things were happening, right? There were other things. There were ordinary things that were going on. You know, people who woke up in the morning and, you know, fell in love and and, uh, and had broken hearts and uh, kind of had had highs and lows in their lives that weren't associated 
with some of the traumas of life. And in not telling the ordinary stories, and I would, I would think that we do this in, in art a lot, right? There's a Harriet Tubman story, or there's the 12 Years a Slave story, but I live an ordinary life too. Uh, we have had an ordinary past, and it, when we don't tell that story, then uh, either you're making a choice sometimes between uh, going out and, uh, and, and living that horrible story of 12 Years a Slave, an extraordinarily well-told story that is horrible, or uh, I don't see anything, or I'm, I, maybe I'm on the furthest other end of that continuum and I'm watching Kevin Hart. There's a, there's, a, there's a whole lot of my life and culture that lives in between there. That's interesting. I have a question to, to come off of that. And you've heard me say this a bunch, that there's just not enough diversity in film and movies. Um, I mean, film and TV shows, uh, books, like the newer stories that are coming out. And although there are more and more that uh, uh, forms of storytelling releasing with the diverse set of characters, I still feel like there's an issue of stereotyping and limited typecast role. Like with, with what you were just saying, how do you feel like we move forward um, with our culture to navigate us through these existing limitations? Um, like you said, there's the stories of the past past, and then there's more recent past where there's been lots of success. We're not seeing those stories. Do, so what do you see as a solution? Well, I, don't, I mean, I don't really know that I could prescribe the solution. I think because the solution requires a shift in mind um, and a shift in culture, and those things you can't do with a single story or a single movie. But a, a big part of it involves uh, sort of pouring more and more and more into the universe of stories so that there's space for the ordinary ones. I think that we feel an urgency to tell the Harriet Tubman story because it's never been told well. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex story. Uh, we're still fixing the history from you know 200 years ago, 300 years ago. Uh, so there's, a, there's a, a challenge, I think, in our culture overall that when we gain the power to tell a story, we tell the ones that have never been told or that have been told badly. Uh, and until you have that year, and I remember the year of Moonlight as an example, where you have enough material out there, enough people telling stories, that I've got room for a love story uh, that is, that it's not, that's not grounded in, uh, in the trauma of racism or the trauma of war or, you know, of civil rights struggles or all of the things that are important stories that we feel compelled to tell once we have the power to tell them. I just think that that is so powerful. The simplicity of telling the ordinary stories. And that just really resonates with me primarily because that's 90% of our lives. Right. You know, this moment, you know, three people sitting in a room, having a conversation. It's ordinary and it happens so often that it's overlooked and it fades away in your memory and it never comes back again until, like you said, there is a traumatic event or something that you you continue to reflect on that, you know what I mean? Like, I just think that that was very, very powerful. So 
I wonder if you can tell me like about character development in that because as we consider the stories that have been told the Harriet Tubman's the Malcolm X's the Martin Luther King's and we look at those stories as oh I have to be this public persona to matter I have to do these specific prescriptions of things to matter how do we tap into the ordinary parts of our own story and the ordinary parts of our culture's story to become our own griots and really find the character development for our lives? Well, you know, I teach people how to tell personal stories. It's a personal essay writing course that I run every year. And it's called Write Your Heart Out. Uh, I do it through my old organization, the Pointer Institute. And uh, one of the things that I have to convince people of every time I run this course is that they have a story that they can tell. Because everybody sits around and thinks, well, I have to have that extraordinary thing because all my models are of the, uh, you know, the incredible overcoming of odds or um, the tremendous accomplishment uh, and, and everything feels outsized. But what people find out over and over and over again is when they explore a story personally, uh, and this is the paradox of storytelling. They, the, the more personal the story becomes, the more universal the lesson. And it's an odd paradox, but it works this way. That if I can get down close enough to the details of my story, that you, in hearing it, will start finding strands of yours. And they will intermingle your story into mine, and become a different story. Uh, if you've ever had the experience of reading a really good book, and you're reading the book, and you're going page to page, and then at some point you realize, wait, I've got to go back four pages, because somehow my brain, even though I continued to read, my brain left this story and fell into my own story. And that's the writer's success. That's a moment when the writer has succeeded, even though you might not be uh, reading exactly the words and, the, and the, the intent that I had in writing that story. You have now become part of my story. And, uh, and, and that simply involves finding the thing that makes you passionate. So if I were to ask you to just think of a relevant moment in your life, something, everything, every time I've asked the question, something comes to someone's mind. And all I want you to do when you find a relevant moment is to explore it. Forget the audience for a moment and just explore it. And there are the ordinary things, right? So I'll just tell you the personal essays that I've written. I wrote an essay about teaching my child to ride his bike, my youngest son, Noah. I've written an essay about uh, uh, when, when our uh, dog died. Simple ordinary things and you see, and people will say well wait how many people have written a story about teaching their child to ru to ride a bike or losing a pet everybody but nobody has ever written mine and when i write mine and i really get down into how i feel and what that experience is like and what i saw through my eyes at the moment that my child could ride the bike on his own you will find your version of that story 
as you listen to mine, and you will go there in your head. And if we just trusted that that existed for all of us, and that we didn't have to have the extraordinary story, more of those ordinary stories would come out and you'd see more moonlights, right, to go along with the Harriet Tubman's. What we're, what we're doing here with this podcast is trying to educate our listeners on telling their stories and moving those along so that they can become their own griot and, and support their tribe and family and carry on those traditions, um, and, you know, and pass that on to their, their friends and, and close ones. Uh, so, I mean, you really hit the, hit the nail there with, with the personalization, um, even of the ordinary, and it's still with those two things mixed together becomes a unique experience, transfers to another person, and then that, happen, that process happens over again. So I think that's the biggest takeaway is, uh, you know, for our listeners is to not feel compelled to tell the most triumphant um, story or, or your biggest failure, uh, but really look into those those ordinary moments, right? That, that are really the most important, as you said, 90% of our life. So there's plenty there and you can pull it out. As we tell our own stories, you find yourself in that. And for me, this podcast really is an act of self-care, of self-love, of self-therapy in giving us the space to explore our own stories. I mean, so often we go to work. We go home, we take care of our kids, we do the things and we find safe spaces, you know, in our families to talk about certain topics or, you know, in our close network of friends to talk about certain things. But there's really not a lot of safe spaces for us to explore the ordinary occurrences that affect us so uniquely. Right. Well, if you if you think about some of the best comedians that, you know, especially comedians of color, thinking like, you know, John Leguizuma, Leguizuma or, or Richard Pryor, two, two that I would point to in particular, and you listen to their comedy, all of it picks at the most ordinary parts of people's lives. They don't, they're, and they're not extraordinary stories, and what makes people resonate with those stories is, is that, first of all, these are very funny people telling them, but it's also that I can find my way to something close enough to the experience that this person is relating to me that I can, I can relate at, at some level. And then I find, even, even while I'm laughing at your joke, I'm laughing at my life. Uh, and that's the, the connection. You just have to trust. And people just don't do that a lot of times in, in the storytelling. They don't trust that I've got something to say. And, and that if I tell you, if I really give it up in the writing or in the storytelling, that you will find your way into it. Uh, and so I think that that's the, the, the hard switch that people have to make to become good storytellers. Is, is not being afraid, basically, the fear? Yeah, what, what's not being afraid that you don't have something to say. That's powerful. And I think it's also the, the fear of what, right? Like, because we are our own worst critic. So 
it's the fear of judgment, the uh, shame of whatever we may find in there. A lot of times people, um, we don't want to look in our own stories for what we may discover and the paradigms that then have to switch potentially, right? And so then if we are transparent and lay ourselves bare, which is counterculture, right? Because if we consider what we're taught to be our persona and how we're taught to kind of move through the world, what has really helped to protect um, black people in particular is our ability to code switch and to move in and outside of spaces. And so to explore our stories and find our authentic truth, one that resonates with us and an ability to share it without fear of how it will fall, without fear of someone else's opinion or judgment and just being concerned with arriving at a space, you know, that we're comfortable with. I think that's powerful. Well, the real power of that is in that scariest place, because if I trust that when I tell you the thing that gives me the greatest pause, that what will happen with you is not that you will, you will stand back and stand in judgment of me, but that that will drive you inside to find that story in you. If I trust that that's actually the way it works, because it is, then I tell the story. You know, I've I've written personal stories for, I don't know, decades. <laughs> uh, and one of the things that I find, and I, I go back to the days when I got physical letters from readers, right up to today when I, I might get a, a tweet. Uh, and one of the, the funny uh, uh, consequences of this is that I get the letter and it says, uh, Dear Mr. Woods, uh, read your story about uh, about your daughter, and uh, really like the way you write. And and maybe there's another sentence or two about that. And then the rest of this incredibly long letter is a story that they are telling me about themselves. And that's what happens when you give it up: is that you brought me somewhere personal, and now I have to tell you my story. Hey, Griots, we want to thank you so much for sharing space with us. If you enjoyed this podcast or heard something you liked, pay it forward and pass it along to someone else. We're making more episodes that celebrate our stories, so support us. Go to your preferred podcast app, rate us, and subscribe. You can also follow us on IG at The Griots Podcast or visit the website at thegrios.co to get resources from the show notes or even submit a comment or question on the episode. Until next time, be inspired and be on purpose. And remember to live in the now because nothing lasts forever.